Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles on a rainy, chilly afternoon. Wednesday of this week, I was invited to speak at Chadwick School, a private school in Palos Verdes, California. The teacher had contacted me and told me about their history lesson on Buddhism they had been reading and wanted to know if I'd be willing to come down and talk about what it meant to be a Buddhist. So they gathered the 8th graders together in a small auditorium and my presentation was on being a Buddhist. So what you're about to hear is that presentation at Chadwick School in Palos Verdes, California. Okay, so um, my name is Reverend Kusala. I was given that name. That's not my birth name. And when you become an official Buddhist, they give you a name. That name means skillful. And I was given that name because I wasn't skillful. So anytime somebody says Reverend Kusala, that's supposed to remind me to be skillful. So I can cause less suffering in the world. Now, I was born a Lutheran a long time ago, and then I went to high school in the 60s, and if you know anything about the 60s, it was very important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So that's what I did, and I became an agnostic. I became someone who didn't really know about religion or God, but felt comfortable saying that, and then I turned 30. Now, who would have thought? So I crossed over to the other side. And has anybody ever seen a movie called Logan's Run? Well, in that movie, when you turn 30, they kill you. Because you're too old, and they have so many people in their society that they can't have old people. So there's this little thing in their palm that looks like a crystal, and it starts to blink. And that's how they know that you're over 30. So when I turned 30, it was a traumatic experience for me. I thought I'd be dead soon. So I joined the gym. I quit smoking. And then I found out that my mind and body seemed to be connected, but not in the way I thought they were. So I said to myself, I want to learn how to meditate. So I found a meditation center called the International Buddhist Meditation Center and started to learn how to meditate. And then I went out and bought a book called World Religions by Houston Smith. And in that book, they had this really good chapter on Buddhism. And I read it, and it made perfect sense to me. Everything he said about Buddhism, I seemed to already know, or at least feel comfortable with. So I continued to meditate, and I continued to read more books on Buddhism, and I continued to meditate and read more books, and after a year, I decided to become an official Buddhist. So I'd have some place to go when I died, because I would be dead soon. I was over 30. (laughs) It wasn't until a couple years later that one of my teachers said to me, have you ever thought about becoming a monk? You know, we have a lot of Buddhism now in America. We have some of the best teachers in America. And this would be an opportunity for you, Kusla, to do something else with your life. You seem to really like Buddhism. You seem to be pretty good at meditation. Not really good, but pretty good. 
and have you thought about what it would be like to be a monk? And I said, well, I don't want to be a monk because I want to have a girlfriend. And monks can't have girlfriends. So how boring is that? You know? And then, if you become a monk, you have to dress funny. You have to dress like this. You can't have cool hair. And you have to wear clothes that are sort of brown. Looks like you work for UPS sometimes. You know? And, and I mean, who would want to do that? Well, as it turned out, about 10 years later, I started to want to do that. Now, I don't know why, really, but it started to make sense to really have more time, not have to have like two or three jobs, not have to have house payments, not have to have car payments, not have to have a wife, not have to have kids, but just have more time to sort of investigate what it meant to be me. And that started to make sense to me. So I went to my teacher and said, I want to become ordained. How do I do that in America? They said, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to take eight precepts, eight training vows, and you'll become a postulant. And you have to hold those eight precepts for a year. Then you have to take ten precepts, and then you'll become a novice monk, and you have to hold those for two years. And if you still want to be a monk after those three years, then you have to take over 200 precepts. And you have to keep those for the rest of your life. And you'll be an apprentice monk for five years, just so we can see if you'll be a good monk. And then if you turn out to be a good monk, we'll give you permission to leave the center, start your own center, or have students, if you like. But you have to take those five years. So I did it. I quit my job. I moved into the meditation center. And I was really nervous because how do you live if you don't work, you know? Because you guys now are in school, so you can learn a lot of stuff, so you can get a good job, have a nice career, have a good life. And here I am, moving into a meditation center, which is really a weird place to live anyway, and I'm not even going to be working. So the meditation center said, well, because you're going to be one of our monks, we'll give you a room to live in. So I live in a small room at the meditation center. And then they said, we'll give you health insurance, too. So if you get sick, you can go to the hospital, and you won't have to die. And I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And then they said, we'll give you a little bit of money each month, so you can buy some new socks once in a while, buy some food, do the things you need to do. But we can't give you a lot of money, so you can't have any debt. Do you have any debt, Kusla? I said, no. They said, you don't have any charge cards? No, no charge cards. You don't owe any money on your car? No, car's paid off. Old car. Okay, then it'll work. Because if you have a lot of debt, you can't be a monk. Because you don't make a whole lot of money. So I moved in, quit my job, started to meditate, started to study. One year as a postulant, two years as a novice monk. Then I decided to be a fully ordained monk and did that ceremony. And then I said to myself, well, here I am. I'm a Buddhist monk now. Living in Los Angeles, what am I supposed to do? Do I just meditate all day long? Do I talk to people about Buddhism all day long? Do I read really good books all day long? Do I watch TV all day long? What do I do as a monk? Well, I got a phone call. And it was from a guy who was from L.A. County State Prison for Men, Deacon Szymanski. And he said, Reverend Kusla, 
would you be willing to come up to the state prison and teach the Buddhist prisoners about Buddhism? And I said, there are Buddhists in prison? Because, you know, everything I read about Buddhism, it didn't look like we went there. We were wise and compassionate, always kind and loving. How could we end up in prison? Well, we do. And for a year, I rode my motorcycle once a week to Lancaster, California, to talk to the Buddhist prisoners. Now, if you've ever gone to Lancaster, California, especially on a motorcycle, it's like going to hell once a week. It's hotter in the summer, colder in the winter, and the wind never stops blowing. And here I am, you know, on my motorcycle, going up to the upper desert, and then I go into this giant building that holds 4,300 men. Now, if you've ever been in an all-male society or community, you start to realize when you take women and children out of the mix, there are no soft or round edges. It's very difficult. It's all about power when men get together. So I'm in there as a volunteer, and one of the guards says to me, Why are you here? What are you doing here? I said, Oh, I'm a Buddhist volunteer. I've come to teach Buddhism. And you know what he said to me? He says, hell, next we're going to have astrologers coming up here. So he wasn't real happy to hear me talking about Buddhism or see me up there. And they gave me this little thing that looks like a garage door opener, a little plastic box with a button. And he said to me, if something goes down, just push the button and we'll come and save you. So... I'm thinking to myself, I'm in trouble if something goes down, because they're not going to come and save me. But as it turns out, the Buddhist prisoners became my best friends. And they said to me, Kusla will protect you if something happens. And you know what? The Christian prisoners protected the Christian minister, and the Jewish prisoners protected the rabbi. All the prisoners protected their religious people. Now, my people were a little small, but they were fast. So I felt comfortable. <laughs> so I was able to find volunteers to help me. And after a year at state prison, I got a call from Central Juvenile Hall, downtown Los Angeles. 500 children behind bars every day from 9 to 18. And they said, Reverend Kusla, would you like to come down and teach Buddhism to the children behind bars? And I said, well, are there any Buddhists? Well, I don't think so, he said to me. But I think these children would really like to hear about meditation and Buddhism as a way to relax. And I said, okay, I'll come down. So the first presentation I gave at Juvenile Hall were to the high-risk offenders. These were the guys that had killed somebody or hijacked some cars or rape somebody. These were the tough ones, you know. And here I'm walking into this big room, and here are all these big guys. And I felt immediately comfortable. Every guy there had my haircut. <laughs> I'm saying, okay. We can talk. So the first thing I said to them was, is anybody here suffering? And every hand went up.
I said, I'm here to talk about suffering and how to end suffering. I had their attention right away. And I talked about what the Buddha said about suffering. The Buddha said that life is really difficult because we're born. And because we're born, we have to get sick. And because we're born, we have to get old. And because we're born, we have to die. And there's nothing we can do about it. And they all went right on, Kusla. I'm hearing you. And I said, if that's not bad enough, there are people in this world we don't like and places in this world we don't want to be in. And they said, Amen, Kusla. <laughs> so I was talking to them at a level they could understand. I was explaining to them that life is really difficult. And it only gets worse the older you get. And then you have to die. So what did the Buddha say? The Buddha said, I have found the answer. As human beings, we don't have to suffer if we practice Buddhism. So Buddhism isn't about finding God. Now, a lot of people think Buddhists are atheists or agnostics because the Buddha never talked about God. Does anybody here think that Buddhists don't believe in God? Okay. Does anybody here think Buddhists do believe in God? Does anybody here think Buddhists don't know? Okay, good. <laughs> That's probably the correct answer. We don't know. Imagine 2,500 years ago, this guy, who was soon to become the Buddha, named Siddhartha Gautama. He had just been to the city. He had seen this really old guy, this really sick guy, this really dead guy, and then he saw this really... <laughs> And then he saw this really religious guy, this yogi, this mendicant, who seemed to be really calm and unaffected by all the suffering he had just seen. So I picture him, the future Buddha, going to the top of this hill on a full moon night and saying, all the gods of India, please step forward, come and end human suffering. There's no reason why humans have to suffer this way. Please come and end human suffering. And not one of the gods of India did that or could do it. And he was taken aback by that. He said, why won't you help me with this? You make the weather. You make the plants grow. You give us life on earth. And you won't end human suffering? And the gods were silent. So he said, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it. And as you all know, in the story of the Buddha, he did it. He figured out why humans suffering, why humans suffer, and he figured out how to end that suffering. So as a Buddhist monk, I never talk about God, whoever she might be. I talk about why we suffer. So actually, being in Juvenile Hall was probably a good place for me to be, wasn't it? Because everybody in Juvenile Hall suffers. There was this one girl I was talking to. She was 15 years old. She was in there because she was a prostitute. And I said, what do you miss most about being in Juvenile Hall? She said, I miss carbonation. All I want is a soda. They won't give it to me. Isn't that interesting? When our freedom is taken away, what stuff we really miss? You know? So the Buddha, in a very real way, took away his own freedom. His freedom to do anything he wanted, because that didn't end suffering. He became a disciplined human being. 
He found that having a practice ended suffering. He found that doing the right thing, saying the right thing, and thinking the right thing ended suffering. So for 45 years, all he talked about was why we suffer and how to end our suffering. And for five years at Juvenile Hall, that's all I talked about. Why we suffer, how to end our suffering. Before they found out I was there, I was invited to go speak in some of the classrooms. Well, as you know, in California, there is a law called church and state. And we can't have church in the classroom. So I'd walk in, and I can remember this one sort of older woman who was a teacher. And she said, Reverend Kusla, I'm going to be listening. I don't want to hear you talk about God even once. I said, no problem. And for the whole hour, I didn't mention his, her name at all. But then they found out I was there, so I couldn't go back into the classrooms. But I wasn't talking about religion, was I? I was talking about how difficult it is to be a human being. And I found other volunteers to help me. I found people to teach yoga, Aikido, and Tai Chi. And we had volunteers coming in every week to help those young people behind bars learn some new skills so they could suffer less. And I can remember meeting a Catholic volunteer. And he looked at me and said, why are you here? He was really surprised to see me. I said, well, I'm here because people are suffering. He says, good to have you on board. He knew, too, that Buddhism helped people suffer less. Does anybody think Buddhists go to heaven? Who thinks Buddhists go to heaven? A few people. Who thinks Buddhists don't go to heaven? Okay, a couple people. And does anybody think we go to Christian heaven? Not one. Oh, one. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, we can't go to Christian heaven because we meet none of the qualifications. We have to go to Buddhist heaven. We have 32 Buddhist heavens. And we have 32 Buddhist hells. And if we're skillful or good, we get to go to heaven. But our heavens aren't forever. Eventually, we have to leave our heaven and come back as a human being. That's a good thing if you're in hell, because it means hells aren't forever either. But our final goal is nirvana. We want to achieve nirvana. You know the Buddha right now is alive? But he's not alive because of birth, like we are. He's alive because of nirvana. What he did is he found a way to exist without being born. So if you're not born, you can't get old, can you? And if you're not born, you can't get sick, can you? And if you're not born, you can't die, can you? Isn't that cool? So every Buddhist wouldn't mind going to heaven, but it's not forever. Every Buddhist wants to go to nirvana so they can exist but not have to die ever again. For five years at Juvenile Hall, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about how difficult it is to be under 20. I had forgotten. I was invited to go to Garden Grove. Garden Grove is in Orange County. And they said, Reverend Kusler, we'd like you to give the keynote address at the mayor's prayer breakfast. And I said, but I don't pray. Is that okay? 
no problem, we'll feed you. Okay, I'll show up. So I went to Garden Grove, gave a presentation, and the chief of police was in the audience. And I got a call from his office a couple weeks later asking me if I wanted to be a police chaplain. And I'm thinking, how cool is that? I've been behind bars now for five years as a volunteer. I could be in the car with the cops, just like the TV show. And they said, we'll give you your own bulletproof vest, too. And I'm thinking, how neat is that? My own bulletproof vest. I've got a hat that says chaplain, a jacket that says chaplain, have a badge. They want the bad guys to know that I'm a chaplain so they won't shoot me. But you know what I thought? I'm thinking if the bad guy's an atheist, I go first. So far, that hasn't happened. For the last five years, I've been a volunteer police chaplain in Garden Grove. And I go on ride-alongs with the police officers. And I see how hard it is for people to live together. Most of the calls we go on are domestic disputes. Husband can't get along with a wife. Parents can't get along with the children. Children can't get along with the parents. Dog ran away. Something is always happening when you live at home. So we go in there and we talk and we try to understand and allow the other people to understand how hard it is to live with another person. Even if you love them, it's hard to live with them. Because every day they're changing and every day you're changing. Buddhism says one of the things about life is it never stays the same. It's different every day, every moment of every day. So I learned a lot about how hard it is to be a police officer because those men and women in uniform could get killed that day. And yet, for some reason, they still get in the car and they go out into community and they protect us. Most of them do a really good job. Most of them meet the worst guys and gals you've ever seen. And they have to deal with that and not bring it home to their family. So I'm very honored to be a part of that. And I learn a lot from them. Now, because I don't work, because I live in a small room, because I have health insurance, I have all this extra time. So I'm also at UCLA. And I've been a volunteer uh, chaplain over there now for about eight years. And we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. Those Catholics are so nice to us. And it all happened because of the Second Vatican Council. In the Second Vatican Council back in the 60s, Catholicism said Buddhism was okay. You can talk to the Buddhists. <laughs> so since 1989, we've had a Buddhist-Catholic dialogue going on in Los Angeles. We meet once a month, and we talk about different things. And we always have food. And it's really nice to share an hour or two with the Catholics, and hopefully they feel the same way about us. But they were kind to let us use their chapel at UCLA. And so our Buddhist club meets there. And I'm also on the spiritual care committee at the UCLA Medical Center. And I give presentations to the new chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. Because Buddhists die differently than Christians do, or Jews, or Muslims, or Hindus, or Baha'i. We all have our own way of dying. Now, you probably haven't thought about dying very much, but being a police chaplain, I got to go to the Orange County Coroner's Office and see dead people for a whole day. 
I was so excited because I had never seen dead people before. And I was curious. And you know what? If you call them up and say, I want to come in and see dead people today, they won't let you in. You have to be invited to see dead people. It's the last big secret. They don't want us to know something, and I'm going to tell you what they don't want us to know. So I went there, and that day we had six people to look at. We had a boy who was 15 years old who had committed suicide the day before because he got bad grades and didn't want to tell his mom. (coughs) Hung himself from the rafters. There was a woman of 34 years old who was dead because she went to a party the night before and mixed some drugs and some alcohol and died. There was an old guy of 51. Well, I'm 56, so he wasn't that old, but it was an old guy. And he died in a chair next to a bottle of vodka. He had been drinking for years and years and years, and his liver finally gave out. And then there were three just really old guys who died because they were old. Well, you know, I had never seen what a dead body looked like before, and it looks like it's a fake body. It doesn't look real. It looks like it comes from a prop department at a big motion picture studio. It just sort of lays there. And it doesn't have any, the form is weird, you know? And you're sort of waiting for the body to wake up and say hi, and it never does. And the woman who was 34 who had died at the party, she had just painted her fingernails. You know, and I can imagine her getting ready, combing her hair, and saying, well, I'm going to have fun tonight. This is going to be a great party. And then she died. And then she has a bunch of chaplains looking at her dead body the next day. And you know what thought came to my mind? I wonder if anybody here, besides the kid that committed suicide, I wonder if anybody here ever planned on dying. I wonder if they ever went to their minister or their pastor or their rabbi or their imam or their monk or their priest and said, in my religion, how do I die? Because I don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen any day. I bet you none of them did that. And they all died. So we're walking around looking at, you know, they have a lunch area in the coroner's office where they eat their lunch in this building with all these dead people just right next door. I'm going, I don't know if I could eat my lunch here. But they got used to it. Now, the Baptist chaplain who came along with us brought some muffins and coffee for afterwards, part of their religious tradition. So we're sitting at a big table, drinking our coffee, eating our muffins, and I raise my hand to ask a question. I say, do you feel any energy here? Do you feel that not everybody is dead here? Because I told them, when I was in one of the rooms, somebody touched my shoulder. And I looked around, and there was nobody even close to me. And my whole spine just started to tingle like, this is a movie. This isn't supposed to happen. And you know what he said? He said, yes. He said, I'm a born-again Christian. He said, this has confirmed my faith. We come here every day, and it's always different. The energy is always changing, and we don't know why. Sometimes it's really light and fun. Sometimes it's really dark. And yet, we have to get our job done. So the secret that nobody wants us to find out is that after this life is over, we don't die. 
we continue to exist in another way. Another way. But nobody really wants us to think about that because they want us to make a lot of money, spend a lot of money, have fun, and death will take care of itself. So as a Buddhist, we look at life maybe a little different. We say, my day is special because today could be the last day of my life. I drive a motorcycle. Have you seen how people drive on the freeway? They are nuts. Miracle I'm still alive today. This could be my last day. Did I enjoy my lunch today? Did I taste every bite? Could be the last meal I'll ever eat. Do I enjoy the motorcycle ride with the wind in my face, the sun on my shoulder? Am I enjoying it? Could be the last time I'll ever ride. So we shouldn't be scared about death. We should use death to make our life even better. It should give us urgency. What do we want to do today? We might not be able to do it tomorrow. What do we want to get done today? You see how we're sort of looking at it as a Buddhist? Life is a gift. It is so hard to be born. If you're a Christian, this is your first time here. Welcome! You finally made it! What took you so long? If you're a Buddhist, I might say, Welcome back! Good to see you again. If you're a Hindu, I might say, My, my, I haven't seen you in this whole incarnation. How are you? You know, a lot of us are really concerned about what happens after we die. But where were we before we were born? That, for me, is an interesting idea. So, birth is special. This life is special. We only have a few years. We don't want to sleep through it. We want to be connected to it. We want to live it in an urgent way. We might want to stay up a little bit later, get up a little earlier, just to have more hours in our day, to get more stuff done, to have more fun. You never want to be angry with your parents and leave it at that, because you may never see them again, and then their last thought about you is, they were angry. When I talk to my mom, who's really old now, I always want to leave on a good note. I want her to remember me as a nice guy. I want her last thought about me not to be the argument we had on the phone, but all the years that she was my mother and I was her son. Life and death in Buddhism is very important. It's what connects us all. Makes us all a community. A lot of people say... One is the best number. We do have one God. We have one nation under God. We have one way of doing this. We have one way of doing that. But you know what I see when I see one? I see all the ones that are left out. You know? And when people want to make me one with them, I'm going, but how can you? Look at the way I dress. I'm not like you. I can't be one with you. Buddhism says we don't have to be one. Buddhism says we're already connected. We always have been and always will be. So our brothers and sisters are all over this world, in every country, in every state, in every city. They are our brothers and sisters, according to Buddhism, because ultimately we are all interconnected and all interdependent, and we don't have to be one. And when you don't have to be one, you can be different. You can have diversity and unity. 
I really like that. I like that idea that I can be who I need to be, and yet I'm still always connected to you, whether you know it or not. My job as a Buddhist is to know it. We call that enlightenment. When somebody becomes enlightened, they know for sure that they are connected to everyone all the time. And if you've read about the Bodhisattva ideal, the Bodhisattva ideal is to always be kind to everybody because they are you and you are them. I want to share with you something I learned a year or so ago that made a big difference in my life. As a man, I didn't know how to love. No man in my life ever told me how to love. They only told me how to lust. So a couple years ago, a couple years ago, some Catholic monks and some Buddhist monks got together to talk about inner life and training. So now we had monastic men coming together to talk about what it means to be a man. And I thought, well, this is going to be really interesting because none of us guys have girlfriends. So what do we know about love and lust and intimacy? Well, we started talking, and even monastic men, when they start talking, sooner or later they start talking about sex. But we talked about how not to have sex. So we did it a little differently. But then one of the guys said, he said, you know the reason I became a monk? Because I was afraid of girls. I was 17 years old, and I didn't know how to talk to a girl, and I thought, I'm going to be a monk, so I don't have to. <laughs> and he joined a Catholic monastery, and now he's in his 60s. He's been a monk his whole life. Never had to talk to girls. And another guy there said, you know, I really like girls, but I always got confused about how to love them. I, you know, I wanted to, to control them. I wanted to make sure they write the, wear the right clothes and stuff. And that's not really love. I was just never clear on that. So I'm thinking to myself, what does it mean to love another human being, whether it be a man or a woman? How does that work? And how do you sh express your intimacy to them if you really love them? So after the conference, I went back to the center. I was meditating and meditating, thinking about this, and I figured it out. And I'm going to share it with you. This is mostly for the guys, though, but please, girls, listen to this. So first I had to define what love is. And then I thought to myself, did the Buddha love everybody? Well, you read the story about the Buddha. He was a tough guy. He had a family. He had a wife. He had a kid. He bought him all sorts of jewelry and nice clothes. They had the best food. But is that really love? And then he left them. And he went to the forest. Sometimes he only had one meal a day. Sometimes he wouldn't lie down at night to go to sleep. He'd sleep sitting up. Sometimes he just wanted to suffer even more, so he'd build like a bunch of fires and sit between the fires and just sweat and feel so uncomfortable. I'm thinking, how did this guy love? He came from the warrior caste. He was trained how to use bows and arrows and throw spears and ride elephants. Did he really love everybody? You know, he, he doesn't seem like he was like Jesus to me. He seems like he was a totally different kind of guy. So if he did love everybody, how did he love? What did he do to love everybody? 
And I thought about this, and I thought about this, and finally it came to me. I have to say, yes, the Buddha loved everybody. But according to my definition of love, love is accepting the person you love exactly the way they are. Now, this is a really profound kind of love. And I thought back to my life, and I said, has anybody really accepted me exactly the way I am? And my first thought was to my parents. Well, I'm sure my parents did. And then I thought, no way. They always wanted me to be different than I was. They never liked the clothes I picked out. They didn't like the way I combed my hair. They hated the music I listened to. They always wanted me to be different. They didn't really accept me the way I was. And then I thought about all my girlfriends. Did I have any girlfriend that really accepted me exactly the way I was? Usually they wanted to buy new clothes for me. So I'd have to say, probably not. Was there anybody, is there anybody that really just said, Kusala, you are perfect just the way you are? And if there was, how would that feel? How would it feel to have somebody in your life who just looked at you and said, you are perfect just the way you are? Now, sometimes our dogs and cats accept us just the way we are. Isn't that, you know? There's a certain profound acceptance that they have about us. But we, as human beings, always find what's wrong. We never seem to find what's right. So the conclusion I came to in Buddhism, if you want to really love someone, you have to accept them exactly the way they are. And how difficult is that? I think the Buddha did that, though. Now, the second part of this question was, well, if you do love someone, how do you express your intimacy with them? And if you're monastic men and not having sex, how can you express that kind of love? What would you do? So I thought about this, and I thought about this, and I came up with the answer. The answer is, when you love somebody unconditionally, you're always kind to them. No matter what, you're always kind to them. That's how you can tell if your boyfriend or girlfriend loves you, if they are kind to you. If they're not kind to you, ask some questions. So I was thinking about this, and I, I was talking about this at Paulus Forties High School last year, and one of the guys raised his hand and said, Kusla, I like that idea. It sounds good to me. But I, I don't really know how it works. I mean, what if I'm walking down the street and this guy comes up to me and says, I want a dollar. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be a good Buddhist. I've been meditating now. Am I supposed to give him the dollar because I love him? Is it okay not to give him the dollar and still love him? And I said, oh, yes. I said, but when you say no, be kind. That's all. We don't lose our boundaries because we're in love. We're just kind now. And it is okay to say no if you say it in a kind way. So that conference I went to really taught me a lot about what it means to be a guy and what it means to be a Buddhist monk kind of guy and how I need to love everybody, male, female, dog or cat. I need to accept them just the way they are. Very difficult. When I was a volunteer at Juvenile Hall, for one year, I went to Camp Kilpatrick, which is in Malibu, California. And it's a high-risk probation camp. 
And they asked me if I would teach a blues harmonica class. Because there were some guys there that weren't allowed to play any of the sports because they were just too uh, unkind with the other guys. So I said, I would be glad to. And I called up Honer Harmonicas and got some harmonicas donated to the, to the high-risk offenders there. And, and every week I'd bring in some CDs. We'd listen to Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Wallers. Sonny Boy Williamson, number one. Sonny Boy Williamson, number two. All the really good harmonica players. And pretty soon, they started writing their own songs. Because it was about the blues. It was about feeling bad. They knew how it felt. So I, I brought my harmonica with me today. Because I know sometimes after listening to a guy speak for a long time, it can get really boring. And what I wanted to do was just play one little blues song for you. And a person asked me the other day, well, Kusala, why do you play the blues? And I said, well, what other musical form would a Buddhist play? It's all about suffering. <laughs> so here's, here's an original composition called Juvenile Hall Blues. Anybody have any questions? You've been studying Buddhism, you've been listening to me, yes. Um, why would you want to, like, follow a religion that's all about suffering? Like, don't you want to have, like, some happiness? Yes. Good question. Even though we talk a lot about suffering, most of the Buddhists I know have a pretty good sense of humor. What we want to do is we want to have our happiness be based on something other than a new car, a new house, a new job. We want to find a way to be happy, but not have that happiness change because the conditions changed. So if we achieve nirvana, we can be happy all the time because we never have to suffer again. So it's just a little different way of looking at it. But in order to get to nirvana, you have to understand about suffering. So we talk a lot about suffering in the hopes that it will end eventually through practice and wisdom and compassion, and then we'll always be happy. Thank you. Yes? Have you gotten any better at meditation? 
Since yeah, since I've been practicing? Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing about meditation is you get better for a while, and then you get worse. And then you get better, and then you get worse. It's sort of like life. Sometimes life is pretty good, and then it changes on you. And because you're dealing with the mind, the mind is always changing, and we're not really in control of the mind. So I would have to say, I'm happy just to meditate. Initially, when I started, I wanted to meditate really good. But I gave up on that. So now I'm just meditating, and it seems to make a difference in a good way. So I'd have to say, I'm not much better, but I'm not much worse. Well, that's it. That was my presentation at Chadwick School in Palos Verdes, California, on being a Buddhist to a group of 8th graders. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A.info. And I don't mind getting emails, so if you feel uh, you'd like to share something with me, please do. I'll make sure and get back to you. So until next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.